Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Side with Jackie London. I am your host, Jackie, with barely a voice today. I don't know. I just seem to have gotten that common cold that's going around. It's killing me. I barely can speak, but I am so thrilled to tell you about today's episode. I had the opportunity to chat with two great friends and amazing colleagues. It's our first ever Dietitians Roundtable here on the On The Side podcast, which was so exciting. We basically did not stop talking for, I don't know, three hours. I tried to whittle it, whittle, (laughs) I tried to whittle this down for you guys a little bit, but we had a blast just sort of talking about the state of the food and nutrition conversation here in the U.S., what it's been like throughout the pandemic, how the pandemic has affected our food and nutrition related choices and where we see gaps. We also got into a whole conversation about TikTok. I mean, there's just, there's limitless little nuggets of wisdom and joy and hilarity in this episode. So it is my absolute honor to introduce both of our guests. Samantha Cassidy is a nationally recognized food, nutrition, and wellness expert with a private nutrition counseling practice. She previously served as the nutrition director for Good Housekeeping. Interestingly, she was my predecessor at Good Housekeeping, which is amazing. That's how we met um, and became, basically realized we were sisters, uh, but with different parents, strangely. She is also the nutrition correspondent for Drop 5 Pounds with Good Housekeeping, which was previously on the cooking channel. And most recently, she co-authored the book Sugar Shock and is a regular contributor to NBC News and Today.com. Maya Feller is also a registered dietitian and adjunct faculty at New York University. Maya is dedicated to promoting nutrition education that helps the public make informed food choices that support health and longevity. She's a regular guest on Good Morning America and is the author of the Southern Comfort Food Diabetes Cookbook. So both of these two are unbelievably brilliant, talented, smart, incredible women who are both leaders in the nutrition and wellness space, but also incredibly well-spoken and uh, thought-provoking. And, you know, I guess I'm biased because they are my friends, but I also know that you're going to absolutely love this episode. I think it's killer. So I can't wait to hear what you think. Please, if you love today's episode, share it with me. I'd love to know what parts you loved, what parts you want to hear more about about. As always, if you have any nutrition questions, you can DM me on Instagram at JacquelineLondonRD and be sure to stay tuned to the end of the episode. You will get contact info for Sam and Maya, but you can follow Sam at NutritionistSam on uh, Instagram and Maya at MayaFellerRD on Instagram. And of course, at JacquelineLondonRD, that would be yours truly. We can't wait to hear from you. I can't wait to hear from you. And I'd love to know what you think. So be sure to leave a review if you haven't yet on Apple Podcasts. And please send your questions my way. I can't wait to hear from you. All right, enjoy today's episode. I feel like RDs are now acting as influencers in the in the way in the way that influencers are just like, here's what I did, and that's why it will work for you. Versus like. Let's look at the science and help you where you are, which is actually what our role is. And that's like something that drives me crazy. This is driving me so crazy because, because beyond anything else, there's also this like left out, like, do you really want to hear what your doctor thinks is normal about their own poop? Like, I don't, like, I don't, I'm asking you if my poop is normal. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like that's the kind.
thing that I just feel like, what but happened? It, to, like, why does it have to be about me? Started being like, you know, back when I was having this experience, this is what I found to be most helpful. Like, if, if a therapist ever starts talking about yourself, that's like the biggest red flag. It should be a red flag with any healthcare provider. Like, if I'm telling you what worked for me, it's that's missing the whole point. You know, what's so interesting is I, so I wrote this three-part series that's coming out like in a few months and I wrote it from like the perspective of just like, this is the science, this is what the research says, and this is what I see like out on the whole. And the editor actually came back and was like, we want to add more of your story. (laughs) And I was like, well, I was like, I don't know if that's valuable. And I was like, I also usually don't share my story. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that, not that it's not relevant, but like, I usually don't share my story. And they were like, we want to hear your perspective um, as a black woman and as a dietitian. And I was like, right. And I was like, but that's just my perspective because like people on the whole, like I speak for me and I, my experience is unique to me. So it's like, why would I say like, I did this? (laughs) You should do, you know what I mean? So I I interviewed a doctor this morning who said, (sighs) if you've met one person, you know, one person. It doesn't like that one person. If you've helped one person, you've found a tool for one person. And I was like blown away. Totally. That leads me to, I was talking to the students the other day about recommendations and guidelines. And Mm. I was like, recommendations and guidelines are recommendations and guidelines, period. And they were all like- And also for healthy people, which now I feel like is another extremely obscure- statement, right? Like, what does that mean for healthy people? Like we, who doesn't have some sort of something? Like most people do have something, even if you just normally experience acid reflux and you're trying to make a tomato recommendation, like that's a challenge. Like then you can't, I I mean. Totally. Totally. I had to, I feel like I'm always talking about like, you know, reframing the word healthy and like, if we look at like the numbers in the country, what's the the percentage? It's like 27% of American people are like metabolically well. I was like, that's problematic <laughs> for like a number of reasons, but like, that's a pretty small proportion that, yeah. in comparison to the hundred percent. Right. So that's the other thing I spoke right. to this doctor about this morning. I said, just want to get your thoughts on BMI as a tool and um, weight reduction as a tool. And he said, you know, BMI is not a perfect tool. It's like a public health tool, but it's like the quickest, dirtiest way to sort of like do a risk assessment on the spot. It certainly doesn't, you know, give you the full picture. You need like sort of the background, but in terms of weight reduction, he said, it is true that you could be in a larger body and be metabolically healthy. However, that doesn't represent most people. Perfectly well said also, right? It's so tricky. It is yeah. so tricky. You know, it's funny. I was talking about BMI the other day and I was talking about the fact that like healthcare on the whole is layered with so many problems. And like how your doctor said, it's like a way to assess risk. But what often doesn't happen when people walk into clinical settings is like the full risk assessment. Correct. So need the assessment of BMI. It's and then quick and dirty. Right. right. And there's no discussion about what are the social determinants of health? What's your health literacy? Yes. What are your ba- barriers? Right. For... Like there's none of that. And so yeah. they walk out with oh, you should lose weight, but you don't know anything about the person. And also, I always feel like that's not helpful because people are like, so so this guy was like, it is like telling some, that that advice is like telling somebody to fly to the moon. What are their chances of success? Right. Right. Or the complete disconnect between a statement like, my my favorite one, I, my favorite one, and also having, having some experience with this, which is the like, you got to cut back on the salt. Okay. I don't understand, like, do you, do you, sir, know that like 80% of our sodium intake is not actually from the salt shaker? So even that statement is somewhat incorrect. Like right there, it feels like a misleading statement. Not to mention, 
What does that actually mean for someone's reality from start to finish? Where do they shop for food? Where? What kind How of food about, are they eating? Um, <laughs> my favorite one, reduce your sugar intake to oh. fewer than 10%. Oh, that's, um, a, that's a great one. That is a great calories. <laughs> how, how many calories do I eat? What does that even mean? That's a great, you definitely that, need a master's nothing. degree to answer that question in clinical nutrition. And even then, I still feel like I have a lot of follow-up questions. <laughs> like I, I can't feel like that. that's the guidelines are like the problem. You right. know what I mean? Like, I feel like they're there based on flawed and Haynes data. Don't even get me started on that. I kind of do want to get you started yeah, on that. I, I just know, want I some do Maya too. wisdom right <laughs> I now. I want a little Maya wisdom. Can, tell us about NHANES. First of all, tell us what it stands for. Let's let's talk about what it stands for. I never really understood this entirely. No one ever contacted me about this, by the way. You know what I mean? Like, you know how people are like, oh, yeah, 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 you've been contacted. No, you have No one contacted me. Carry on. I'm shutting up. Please. <laughs> So, all right. So what is it? It's the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, right? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Um, so my challenge with the data sets, and I've said this for like a while, is that, you know, when we look at where we're collecting sample information from, it's not truly representative of the country. For example, like if you look at the nurse's health study or the physician's health study, I think the physician's health study, like it's a bunch of like veterinarians or some something along those lines. <laughs> so that means you're dealing with people who are like really well-educated and have higher income. Exactly. Right. And the nurse's health study is like a number of nurses that they tend to have higher income in relation to the mean population. And they also have higher health literacy. So. Correct. That's the problem there. And that's where some guidelines are coming from. And Haynes is supposed to be representative of the U.S. and be like regular people. But if you go in and you read the fine print in certain years, it says things like they're aware that they were unable to get enough data from people from racial and ethnic minorities and older Americans. So they oversample those populations. But then they go on to say things like, well, there may be bias or additional issues around language and like <laughs> understanding. So you're like, what? Wait a second. So does that mean that the information that you have is actually reliable information because you were able to capture it in a way that the person that was being questioned or filled out the questionnaire understands? Right. Or does that mean that you're expecting that it is not reliable information? Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's such a good question. Right. That's always number one for me. And then number two, the last time I saw an N. Haynes truck in New York was <laughs> definitely when in the city when I was a kid. Okay. Oh mine is never. And mine is never too. Yeah. I, I've never I've seen never, it. Like, like just the very words N. Haynes truck. I'm, I'm like, this exists. Like, they come I had in a no truck? idea. This they come exists. in a truck. <laughs> I'm like, is it like the ice cream truck? What is this? And he literally had an image of the, of the, um, the, of like Mr. Softy, exactly. Of Mr. Softy coming around and he's probably got, they probably are giving out the ice cream. And then they're like, mate, reduce your sugar intake to 10% of your total calorie. (laughs) I mean, I just feel like, you know, we're using information to make recommendations for the general public where we could like really shift how we collect our data, you know, and I know that it's, I know that it's hard to get data. And I know that especially getting like nutrition information from humans is already going to be flawed because it's all bias and all sorts of things. What did I eat for breakfast? Right. Literally I don't remember. Yeah. Oh, 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 you know what I had for breakfast this morning because it was my husband's birthday. So happy birthday. Happy birthday. Um, I made waffles from the Kodiak happy birthday or birthday box. Um, So yes, I opened it up and I was like, yes, this is is amazing. (laughs) I made the waffles, put them in the waffle maker. The kids each had two waffles. Vince had two. And then I was like, oh, it's time for me to walk to NYU because I'm trying to like, you know, work on my blood pressure. And I had half a smoothie. Oh, good for what? You, girl. That is not okay. I, like, and then I, got to, I got out the door. I'm I was missing like, the waffles for you. I was like, wait a second. 
I was like, how did that happen? How Wait, did so I you have- missed the wall? I'm sorry. I just come into this. You missed Wait, the waffles? Also, like you made waffles on a Wednesday morning. <laughs> I missed yeah. the waffles. I was so upset. Like I got up, oh. I made the waffles and I missed the waffles. But then I came home and I redeemed myself because I made a, can I curse on this? Oh, of course. Please. Oh, I made it. Kick ass. I don't even know if that's a curse. Yeah. It's not. Just like this. There's a lot of F bombs. I used the phrase fucking fire as it relates to vinegar yesterday. So we're good. Okay. We're safe. It's a safe space. Yeah. Then I made a, yeah, I made a, a really good salad mixture, but then I ate it too fast because it was like a lot of kale and cabbage. And then my stomach blew up. Oh, and I, was so like, I think I this is such a great food. conversation for people to hear. Like, yes. Dietitians. Sometimes eat too fast. Dietitians sometimes don't eat a balanced breakfast. Dietitians sometimes overeat. Dietitians sometimes eat too much candy. And dietitians are are also people who have to take care of other people who wind up not getting themselves the fucking waffles, which got brought out on a Wednesday morning like the badass that you are. What? Yep. Thank you. Yeah. But that's why tonight we're having Peter Luger for Vince's yes, birthday. You are. And I'm going to have a steak. I have to tell them to hold the salt because I don't want them to jack me up. <laughs> She's hold serious. the salt. She's serious about that. She, I'm so impressed. I'm so proud. I'm so proud well, and impressed. And also, it's not easy. I mean, the salt question, if you don't make all of your meals, which you make plenty of me. I mean, we all three make plenty of meals, but when you want it, dine out, I mean, damn, like it's yeah. like, get the chef on the phone. <laughs> and I'll tell you this too. Cause like, I work with a lot of people who are trying to manage their blood pressure. Yeah. Um, and it's so funny. Like, you know, sometimes my patient will, will get to the point where they're like, Oh, I can't do this anymore. And I'm like, yes, you can. I'm like, you absolutely can. And they're like ready to give up. And because I like have a person, you know, like, I mean, I know the science, but then I also have a personal understanding of like, I know I went to LA last two weeks ago, that red eye, I checked my pressure the next morning. I was like, well, it's okay. Right. Like it's okay. But I know there was no sleep. I was dehydrated because it's COVID times and I was on the plane. I was not taking my, (laughs) I was like, I'm just going to have to die in here. You know, <laughs> you're like, put on your oxygen mask. Do I take the mask off to put that on? How do we do this? Right. So I know it's real. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I know that the nutrition struggle is real when it comes to understanding what the holy hot hell do I put in my mouth? Oh, God. Yes. I mean, that and also a topic on this note that I wanted to ask you both about, which is which is the other component of it. And I was thinking about this the other day. I I was reading some notes that I had taken from a patient. This is a number of years ago. And this was on the flip side. It was about the topic of sugar. And she was sort of trying to mitigate, like she was sort of trying to put off or avoid if she could going on metformin. Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking that that this was also a little bit like um, going to the moon. Like this was also sort of like that expedition of like, okay, I'm going to tell you everything that you're going to order from this restaurant. I'm going to write it down for you in this, on these notes. Like that was, that was the sort of note taking that I had done is like, this is the menu. And, and I remember her coming back and being like, I did none of that. I did actually the exact opposite of that. So chew on this. First of all, like she was extremely compliant with the fact that she was coming back all the time, regular appointments, never missed one, which right there felt like massive win. But on the other hand, it was like, you're here for a specific reason. Uh, We're having this conversation. Like you can recognize that, you know, A plus for awareness, but like what's happening, like what's going on in between all this. And I think some of it, like some of it that, that we had never really fully gotten into, but some of it is a little bit the like, I'm here to avoid this medication, but I know this medication is a backup. And I wonder if like for either of you, you feel like that's any part of the experience is like, is someone like, do you feel like for certain things, is there this feeling that's like nutrition science is, uh, it's maybe it's a maybe, I don't know. I don't know if I can bank on that, but this medication will work. I think that's part of it. But I also think that because situations around food are so social, like whether it's a family social gathering or an outdoor gathering, um, like at a restaurant or with friends or whatever, that there is this 
feeling of being like the, that you are being punished or that you are the prisoner at the table because you're making choices, maybe not necessarily based on a thousand percent, what would be the most amazing meal of all time, but like you're making some trade-offs or you're considering some trade-offs based on meeting your, you know, health goals. And I think there is, I think that's what makes it so troubling is like, there's this idea that you're giving something up. Right. When, if you take the pill, you don't have to give the thing up is I think sort of what, what it can feel like. You know, sometimes when I'm talking to patients about like the choice between pharmacotherapy or using nutrition as the prescription. And I always say to them, I say, you do have a choice, right? Like Mm -hmm. pharmacotherapy is totally there to help you. But if you don't want to take the pill, then nutrition has to become prescriptive. And one of the things that we talk about all the time is that nutrition is thought of as like a a juvent therapy. So it's like something you do on the side Mm -hmm. in in effect makes it not mainstream. Right. Right. So what's mainstream is like the grab and go, the fast food. And I said this this morning to someone uh, as I was walking in an interview. And I said, the thing about fast food is that it's made really fast. So it needs Mm -hmm. the sugar, fat and salt. Right. So you get that physiological response. It's also designed to be eaten quickly. So it's not meant to be savored, pleasured you know, social, uh, you're not meant to stay present when you eat it. It doesn't have to Mm. have complex flavors because of the way it's designed to as manufacture and for end consumption. Right. And so I think when we're saying like, you know, pill or like nutrition as the prescription, we have to first, like, at least for me, like I have to come to terms with the fact that when we're thinking about health in the context of the U.S. or I'd say Western society, there's only one way that people can be healthy, right? So yeah. it's either like you're eating that salad with your dressing on the side, Jackie. Oh God. <laughs> it's like, or it's like she's doing an ad. How many yeah. people, how many among us do put the dressing on the side? show of oh, hands. Yeah. A hundred percent. I do. I do as the author of this book, but I do for a specific reason, which is that I never like one dressing only. I like to have at least four. I like to have a different dip for, for about, I like to rotate the dipping by each bite. So like, yeah, I mean, I got to have, especially if it's like one of these fancy places, like a sweet green or like a just salad. I feel like, first of all, they've got some legit dressings going on there. I got to have both the Thai peanut and the sriracha, whatever, mayo. And I've got to have some sort of pesto-y something. And then I'm going to want some sort of avocado situation. So like I can't mess with, but they don't all go together in the same bowl. They don't taste that good. (laughs) But if I'm ordering like a, like if I'm ordering a Caesar, oh yeah, it's going in there. It's just, it's just a question of like, am I committing fully to that Caesar? Or is this a Caesar and a ranch and maybe a spicy sriracha and a Thai peanut situation? Who's to say? I don't like to be so decisive up front. I don't like to judge my salad before I'm eating it. (laughs) Well, you know what's so funny about that is that if I make the dressing, I put it on. If I buy the dressing out, I put it on the side because I don't want them to jack my food up. Right. Exactly. For me too. It's like, so for me, and this is going to sound so terrible. Like I love food and I love to cook, but if I'm going to go out, you must cook much better than me. Like Agreed. you have to make food way better than me. And often I go out and I'm like, could have made that myself. Like, and I hate that. I hate, then it feels like an automatic disappointment, like, which is, which is part of the dipping situation. Right. Because to me, it's like, it's exactly it. If you can have this at home and it would have been cheaper, easier, faster, and less of a bandwidth struggle, like I'm going to this restaurant on the Lower East Side from all the way up here on the West Side, like, you know what I mean? Like, then make it worth it. I, I, don't, want, <laughs> I don't want you to jack this up with your bullshit sauce. Like, what is this sauce? Like, I don't, why, why is it so sauced? You know? <laughs> 
You're killing me because it's so funny. Friends are always like, they're like, you never come out. You don't come to this place. I was like, because the last time I went there, the food was bad. It was too cold. I feel like that commercial where they're like, you're becoming your parents. It's State Farm. It's State Farm. By the way, State Farm. Hi. Hello. This podcast exists if you want to. Quinoa. Quinoa. Right. (laughs) (laughs) This is that I'm not going to lie. My sister kind of does do that. And I'm like, it's, it's quinoa. <laughs> My dad used to call it quarain. And I was like, that's not even close to the spelling. Like you just added an extra R. <laughs> yeah. Where's the R coming from? No, I know. I mean, that's the thing. Like I, like the best component, I mean, like the real takeaway from this entire part of, of our discussion here too, is that like, the standards have to be high for you to really feel like this is a nourishing meal. Now, it doesn't, not all food has to feel like that nourishing experience, but if you're going to pay and if you're going to put the effort in and you're going to like fix your hair up and and you're going to leave your cute pets who might be asleep on your lap or your children or whatever it is or your apartment, because honestly, we're getting into winter months here and it becomes that much harder (laughs) to leave the apartment. In those times, under those circumstances, it's like, then it really better be something that feels actually enjoyable, nourishing all around. Right. And for me also, like, I don't want to have the salt shakes after because like, that's what happened. I'm so salt sensitive. It's not even a joke. And it's like, I go out and they oversalt and I come home and my whole back is vibrating. And I'm like, well, that was, I know. And so can you imagine though, I, you know, I was talking to someone about this. I said, imagine like I'm super in touch with my body and all the feels and how it feels. That means for sure that other people are as well. Right. But we've been taught to override those sensations. Oh my God. Go back and take the onslaught again and again. That, and like, it really stuns me sometimes like watching Drew, my boy eat Mm -hmm. like, I have seen him leave like a single piece of broccoli on his plate just because he just wasn't hungry for the last bite, which I feel like is the ultimate being in touch with your body. Because I, I have to admit, I don't even think I would do that. Like, I think I'd be like, well, I'm just going to, I mean, it's one piece of broccoli for crying out loud. Right. Like, how much is that going to put you over the edge? Hey everyone, I'm Jackie London, host of the On the Side with Jackie London podcast, a BS-free safe space where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. On the Side with Jackie London is designed to deliver science-based information that's actually useful, relatable, and entertaining. Think of it as a hybrid of an interview podcast and a free nutrition counseling session delivered straight to your ears. I interview leaders in the food and beverage industry, health and wellness practitioners, business execs, and more to learn about what they're eating and how they're staying well. And I also answer listener questions like, should I try a juice cleanse? Or how do I start eating healthier when I'm always traveling for work? I serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to find what works best for you. Subscribe to the On the Side with Jackie Lennon podcast wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Thursday. What about shifts in food-related trends as it relates to the last, let's say, year and a half? I feel like definitely TikTok, like the sort of timing of the pandemic. I can't with even with Did- that. <laughs> Oh, weren't we in the same interview about lemon coffee? Listen, no, what's a lemon coffee? Oh no, Samantha, I don't think this lettuce stimulates lettuce water? metabolism. Stop. It's, it's, it's a load it's of crap. Putting, it's a Thank load you. of crap. <laughs> is what it is. Yeah. It's and it's also it's it's putting a diet behavior above your own well being, like. There is no way you're drinking that thinking like, wow, this is awesome. I want to have this every single day. It's doing something that feels bad, but you're willing to put yourself through it and suffer through it because you think it is going to produce a weight loss outcome. And I think that's a big problem. Lemon coffee sounds like colonoscopy prep. 
to me. It is it does. Totally, it's terrible. Also, the other thing too is like I'm so done with the entire diet industry's obsession with anything weight related, weight I loss. Know. You know what I mean? Like all of this stuff, and then also healthifying everything. Preach and it. like you know. Yes, I was taught that way. And I take full responsibility for the times where I was like, eat this because it's got this, this, and this. And yes, of course, I know we all see it as dietitians, but I'm like, I'm done. I can't anymore. It's just like, what happened to food that was delicious? What happened to food that was crunchy and crisp and fresh? Or, you know, we're just, what happened to food in general? How did we get to this place where you drink a coffee in the morning to boost your metabolism? How about go outside and look at the sun, talk to your neighbor? Like, I mean, I right. think it's so, so I would agree with you, but also I will say that, that um, that's what it reminded me of when Jackie was talking about the lemon or the lime and the avocado and being like a party in the bag and being the best avocado and lime ever and the focus on how that tasted. And so I think that when we were talking about nutrition strategy, like nutrition does provide those benefits of X, Y, Z, whatever, but those healthy, wholesome foods can also provide that satisfaction, that flavor, that creaminess, like whatever it is that you desire. And that's where I feel like that mindfulness and staying present and really like tuning into like, what is enjoyable about my food? What would be, more, what would make it taste better? Like, do I need a shake of chili powder in it? Like, what, like do really you need thinking about dips? your, your food yes. as a yes, source of pleasure <laughs> and identifying those foods that also provide nutritional benefit, but that you're eating because they're pleasurable to you. I mean, oh, yeah. I agree. And I feel like it's so funny. I was talking to someone the other day and I said, you know, I said, I know that we all want our meals in 30 minutes or less. I get it. I understand. And they're like, yeah, because otherwise it's not realistic. And I said, well, you know, here's the thing that's interesting. I said, when, you know, when you look at food around the globe and you look at how people interact with food and you walk into homes, there's usually a pot on the stove mm -hmm. somewhere, right? Like I think about like my friends who were from Scandinavia or like, you know, my friends who were, who were from like Germany and Austria and France and Switzerland. And I think about like those food ways. And then I think about people in the Caribbean and Latin America and Africa and I think about the fact that there is this like through line, people prepare food. There's also not this obsession with doing something every moment of the day and that mealtimes yeah. are actually respected. Guess what? They're just as productive as we are. It's not like we're leading the race for productivity in this country where we're like, sometimes falling we're falling behind. behind. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. But meanwhile, we can only have 30 minute meals. And I'm like, it's okay if you chop something. But, it's okay if you peel. Like it's fine. Or, but I have to say, I was I was not brought up with much cooking. Like I was not brought up with a pot on the stove. I was brought up on. We literally had cheese whiz in a jar, in the always, and that's how my mom made macaroni and cheese. I was in high school before I learned how to bake a chocolate chip cookie. And when I baked it the first time, flipped them like pancakes because I didn't know. I never saw anybody cooking them. So, One and my mom didn't work percent. full time. Same. My intestinal tract was comprised of Kraft macaroni and cheese for at least the first 10 years of my life. We had the spray cheese too that we would put on crackers. Yes. But with that being said, with that being said, now understanding this and seeing other people, places, communities globally and having had the extreme privilege to do that and to learn about what, what else is essentially out there and what the connection is between food and humans, not food and health, like not, not all of that, not making every, like you were saying, Maya, this is a great point, which is like, not every single detail has to be about why it's great for you. What about it's great for you because it's fucking delicious or it's great right. for you because it's a really fun time or it's great for you because eating cheese whiz actually just reminds you of childhood. And that's great too. Now, you know, like there's, there's, we've lost that component, I think in some of the communication about it for sure. On the other hand, I, I think like the 
agricultural connection is very different for like, let's say the coasts of the U.S. versus the middle of the U.S. So true. And and then that's different abroad and that's different depending on your um, proximity to to water, like to where, where exactly are you in the country, in the world where you're having this experience. But being able to kind of learn about different approaches to to staying connected to food. I will never forget being being in talk about um extreme privilege like being in Italy during grad school and a professor saying it's time for our espresso break. And I literally was like <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't a bathroom break, it wasn't a coffee break. It was the espresso break. And I was like in shock. Like I just thought it was so novel and cool and that because what happened was the entire group of students who had just been consuming information sat down, had a coffee and a proper porcelain espresso shot on a little ramp, on a little dish, a little coaster. Like it was just so civilized. And I, I had never experienced something that was just like, now we get to communicate, we rest our brain, but also we could be talking about what we just learned. And this feels like a a sensible way to actually absorb things. I get it's not reality all the time, of course, but like I was about that because I do think what's missing from this conversation a little bit is that you know, unfortunately, there are so many people who are like working a night shift or yeah. working a night shift and then coming home and taking on other responsibilities, whether at home or a second job or commuting long hours, and so the way that um, like we are currently living life here and the challenges that people Mm. have, I think that like, that's to me what also gets sad about the nutrition conversation is it sometimes like leaves those people out because their barriers to eating better really are wrapped in sometimes time, accessibility. Yeah. Well, they're you know. always left out, Samantha. I mean, I think yeah, yeah exactly. systems, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. structures in this country, like really having access to safe, affordable, fresh foods, right? Mm-hmm. Clean water, which we now have to mm-hmm. add into discussion, right? I know, which is so horrible. Which is terrible. Yeah. Um, and then also having the space, the time, the pots, the pans, oh. the refrigerator, the lights, the heat, the nutrition education, the health literacy to prepare it all for sure. Yep. Means and the time. That you're, right. That you're living in a place where your primary needs are met mm-hmm. and you're able to think about food in that perspective. People who don't have their primary needs met, they don't have access to you know, healthcare, they don't have access to safe, affordable nutrition, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on, but there are structures that are in place and have been, I mean, over the last 400 years for sure that replicate themselves that Mm. continually put specific communities at a disadvantage, Mm -hmm. of course, racial and ethnic minorities. And I've also started to include the discussion of, you know, lower income white Americans living in rural America, right? So absolutely. I mean, I've also had conversations about because people get so down on fast food. And I had a conversation with someone once who said to me, you know, there are people who like to go in and get that fast food meal and be able to give a toy to their child that Mm -hmm. comes in the children's meal when they cannot provide their child, they can't go shopping for toys because they don't have the money, like that's the greatest gift that they could give their child. And I like received that information in such a different way than I had ever thought about it in the past, because it is true. Like people have different reasons for eating what they eat and where they eat. And, you know, I think that we just sort of need to be more aware of that. So I will say this too, like, you know, in terms of awareness, I think that's one of the major challenges in the wellness industry. And there's all of this discussion about who gets to be well and who has access to wellness and also what wellness looks like, Mm -hmm. you know, and what health looks like and how we continually show images of what is healthy. And actually today in class, one of the things 
that we talked about is, you know, how do you talk to your patients about, you know, processed foods, right? Like, how do you have that conversation in a way that is truly free from judgment and giving them actionable tips for incorporating them into their lives, right? And so, yes, the thing that's very interesting that we kind of started out with was both of your experiences growing up with, you know, cheese whiz or, you know, I mean, more processed food. And my experience as like a first generation person or child, right, in the US with dry beans, you know what I mean? Lots Mm -hmm. of produce, you know what I mean? People like buying meat and marinating it for days was totally different, right? And so it's like, how do you talk to people about the different ways that they eat and the different ways that food shows up on their plates and what it means to them without making them feel damned all the time? Yes. Well, but this is the perfect pivot here because this is exactly what what I was thinking of as as we're having this conversation is that it is I think uniquely the challenge of the profession and what happens is that the way wellness is presented and what it means to be well versus what it means to prevent disease and what it means to to feel well or to feel like you're taking care of yourself physically emotionally mentally, right? Like what it means to actually feel that way and live that way is dynamic and individual, which means that you need a practitioner (laughs) who can help you navigate that. And that is what we do. But that part of our profession, I feel like has, has somewhat been uh, overtaken. And I, I, there's a lot of things that I could, that I could blame this on. I'd love to be able to blame. I mean, we could talk about you know, our representative organization, for example, like there, there's a lot of different, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why some of this happens, but I feel like more productive for us would be to say, what are we going to do about it? Because I would love to know. I mean, I think being able to even just have conversations like this already feels like a huge step to me because it's all, it's just already making my mind spin in about a thousand different, you know, potential solutions. But there is this other huge part of it that is when we talk about all of these topics, what we're really saying is individual above all else, right? Like the when you're having a conversation with a group and of people compassion. Or, and compassion and actually fucking listening. How about that? You know, like, like yes. actually listening to people instead of telling people like there's that. There's also the idea of health sort of being whatever per- someone personally defines as health, that it's still not going to be a perfect science even for that person, because there's going to be a number of different inputs. I was just speaking to somebody the other day who was um, talking about the um, the fertility drug Clomid and the idea of how a side effect of this drug, and this is not to knock this, I'm sure that this drug can be very effective for many people, but, but the idea of the person's physical reaction was extreme exhaustion and to some extent, um, some feelings of depression. And it just made me think like, Okay, but that that right there feels like it could be a barrier for you for for getting pregnant. Like that the, the those are real factors too. Like in other words, the just medication, just nutrition or just this approach because it seems to be working right now but the next week it's really not working. Like that sort of cohesion of data inputs making sense of it and helping someone to work through it is essentially what we have been trained to do, but there's a big marketing problem with the profession on the whole, because getting that out there about what that actually looks like in real life is sometimes either co-opted or, you know, not well represented or not even, not even really well addressed. And I also think that because people have such poor experiences in healthcare settings and get told what to do or get sent to the moon without a driver's license to get there, (laughs) um, that, providers sound more appealing. And sometimes it's because they promise the moon and that's the appeal. But sometimes I think it's just that people are so fed up with the healthcare system and the way they've been treated and the care they've received and the information that has been thrown at them. Well, for sure. I mean, it's not collaborative care and it's not patient-centered, right? Right. So, I mean, if you go in and just start with your intake, right? In many hospital settings and clinical settings, 
there's one way to identify and there's one type of assumption about who you are and how you walk in that door. And then providers talk to you. I mean, I have lesbian patients. I barely even talked to people when I was in a clinical setting. I mean, Mm. you didn't really have time for that. You had like 12 patients to see. It was like, oh, new onset diabetes. Here's your handout. Do you understand your like marching orders before we are about to release you from the hospital? It's like very poor care. Yeah. But you had no like really options at all. It's not individualized, but that's the challenge is that we continue to teach future RDs to be in that same antiquated way. Right. So it's, this is the diet. That is the diet. It's the 1300 calories, 1600 calorie, 1900 calorie, 2000, 2200. This is what you're supposed to follow. Mm. Right. And so if we continue to teach people that way, then of course, everyone's going to say, well, I'm definitely not going to that RD. I'm going to go see this health coach over here. Who's telling me to make me feel better. Right. 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 Why go to the crazy calorie restricting woman I mean, I don't want to go. You know what I mean? I don't want to go to. Yeah. <laughs> but then you also get the reverse where people are like, can't you just give me a plan? Can't you just give me a plan? Like people are also so overwhelmed that when you're mm. like, you know, it's not, I I don't think a plan is going to be that useful to you because then it, I feel like a plan is actually more overwhelming. It's so like, here's what you have to do. And what if you get tired one night or work late or have right. a social event? So Right. It's, I, it's hard to please. Right. I mean, well, but, but sorry, go ahead. Go, go, no, go, go. I mean, all, all, I w- all I'm thinking about with, with all of this too, is that what goes into the training is so much more than a coach. And to some extent, it's almost like the, the power then becomes how you're going to use this and present it with people. And I think that, and that's where my personal position would be it starts with the listening and it starts a little bit more with the listening but i don't need to tell either of you that because you're both people who do that thoughtfully and with great compassion it's just more of like a how are we gonna how are we gonna tell other people but i think the miss it like there's this missing component of you have to understand biology you have to understand chemistry you have to understand anatomy and physiology and also food production and management and procurement and that component of everything and microbiology and all. So in other words, I think there's an issue with the idea of a society that um, sort of favors, and I think this is social media induced to some extent, which is like this favored, very hyper-specific expertise that you must be a microbiologist to be able to speak about not spreading listeria in a set in like a clinical setting, right? Like that, that you must have studied the pathophysiology of listeria and how <laughs> like its entire history in the world. And I like that is that's this other kind of competing component of things. That's like, you can only be a biologist. Why would the dietitian know that? Right? Like the, the, to some extent, that's a blessing and a curse of being in a profession where you are using science in actual practice on an individual level in a world where you're, you, yes, we want trials, but we also want epidemiology. We want better epidemiology. We also want to understand populations better, communities, groups, and also be able to not steal the joy away from food. And like saying that already probably took me two minutes. Like just, <laughs> just I also think that, that some of that too has to do with where we fall in like the allied healthcare spectrum, mm, you know, yes. and where we fall in terms of reimbursement, right? It's that, it's that piece too, for sure. Nutrition is not, it's not part of the value-based care system. Absolutely. If it were, then people would be referring folks to dietitians and then dietitians would be trained in improving health outcomes as opposed to handing a piece of paper and saying, good luck with that. Right. So that's really, I think that it is about like, where are we in the overall healthcare system and how do people see us as being a part of the care team? Of course, in certain ICU settings, they're like, oh, you know, dietitians are important. But it's interesting now, right? Like during the shutdown portion of COVID, yeah. all of a sudden hospitals realized that dietitians could take blood pressure, could read vitals, and they were like, bring them down, let them do the intakes, right? So 
It's like, how do we get the medical establishment to realize that when we're looking at the non-communicable conditions and we're looking at that vast majority of the U.S. population who has, you know, some type of metabolic dysfunction, right? how do we get them to understand that dietitians can be a major part of supporting the care process? Right. And from the purely direct-to-consumer standpoint, why a dietitian above a health coach? Or a dietitian, you know what I mean, for care and health coaches not for follow-up. I mean, because here's the thing, the truth is we know that patients need to unlearn food-related behavior that they have been engaged in since they were six plus months old. That's not going to happen in one setting right? Or even six settings, you need follow-up care. You probably need to be in groups the same way that we ask people to do DBT, you know what I mean? And sit down and come back again and again and practice the skills. We have to look at nutrition from that perspective. How am I going to ask you to make a soup if, as Samantha was saying, you know what I mean? Had never even made a chocolate chip cookie. Like, well, I need to find out and have that discussion with you. Like, you know what? (laughs) Tell me about your food history. Tell me about your nutrition history. How can I better serve you? The other question for you guys on this, as I think about it too, is that what scares me about the earlier part of our conversation with all of this as well, because I totally agree on all of that, but also the time as a commodity thing is essentially like an affliction that I feel like we're all collectively suffering. (laughs) It's a little bit like the one unifying factor is no one feeling like they have enough time to get done that kind of conscious and empathetic and understanding type of care in in a care setting, right? Because I have vivid memories of being like the last one on the floor that like would be like when I was working clinically because I would feel like, no, like this needs a good note because they're not going to know why I decided to do X, Y, Z. And like the reality is that I really hope that someone read that and cared. But like, I mean, that would happen to me a lot because I would feel like I I don't know who's handling this now. Like it's X, Y, Z resident and with this attending, but also this attending is consulting and like who, you know, like, so there is that component of it is that time is the most precious commodity. So in a clinical setting or in any setting, it's almost like the sound bite, the sound bite wins. And that is sort of full circle, right? Because like then that's why anyone can sometimes come in and give you a good sound bite, but maybe there's no evidence I on guess that sound so. bite. You know? the structures I think change. Yeah. The structures have to change. And I think also like my advice to people would be to be your own advocate. Oh, like God, to be your yeah. own advocate for that change so that you you know, you don't let the practitioner walk out of the room if you haven't gotten what you needed from them. Yes. Yes. I mean, I I feel like someone said this to me recently, and I feel like this really stuck with me, which is that you as the person being treated, they work for you. I, I I as a practitioner work for you. You tell me what, you also get to tell me what you need. I can be as intuitive as I possibly can be, but it's not gonna, if you're not telling me something or if you have a question, I'm not gonna, I'm still not a mind reader. You know, like it's- it's a really that interesting also, point. I think it's a good point, but that also takes into consideration, like, you know, that works for some populations and not Right. Others. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely true. Absolutely it's true. Like, you know, you look at all these rates of like maternal mortality and health outcomes and, you know, obstetrics and gynecology. And it's like, you know, advocating in that situation is really hard, right? Or well, I think it's hard. And it would be hard in any situation. And I know that my lived experience makes it easier for me than for someone else. Yeah. Um, Right. Because you need to even have enough health literacy to know what to ask. You need to feel like you're in a setting where somebody has authority. And so speaking up in that instance is hard. Yeah. So what are we going to do? Well, how are we going to fix it? (laughs) Should have we come to it? Have we? Yes. We've got yes. it. We got it. We got it. Okay. I I so th- <laughs> this year I had some students who were saying I'm thinking of going into law and public policy, and I oh. said everyone stand up and clap for them. <laughs> there you go. Right. We yeah. have to shift the systems. Right. I know that that's. I'm not a public policy person. I mean, in terms of like on the large scale, but yeah. I do think that there have to be systemic changes 
to address what we're talking about. I think on the, you know, micro level, which is where we're working, or at least where I'm working one-on-one with mm-hmm. people or in groups, it's about training RDs to be and health coaches to think from a more inclusive mm-hmm. lens, right? And to really come from a patient-centered approach where there's collaborative care that is still based in evidence. And that science, as we started out by saying, right, is at the forefront yeah. of all of it. It's the become other- such a dirty word science i know dirty word dirty word i know and if that really upsets me because on the other hand it kind of feels like what an opportunity like this current moment should be able to give us that sort of authority without almost without i don't want to say without question but like without um without so many constraints attached to it but it's mistrust in the system in general like it's not just mistrust in it's mistrust in government it's mistrust in big corporations it's mistrust mistrust in the system and so science is just part of that system absolutely absolutely but what's interesting about science as a tool and as a profession or a part or a science based profession is that you are always making the assumption that to some degree you're wrong Right. Like that to do any sort of study is to say, like, I'm going to also include in this in in this part of this study, there's this whole discussion section where I'm going to tell you all the reasons why I might be wrong and why there might be, you know, reasons why this may not work. And therefore, what ultimately gets repackaged in communication is this is why it might not work for you or like this is why and and this like sort of tendency to take information and say this is definitively X or definitively Y, you can see why you might have both the need to do that. And also there's other people that might find that to be like, I don't understand. That makes no sense to me. Why are you telling it to me like this? It's it's a little bit like there's no winning, but there is winning in the idea of taking consensus versus controversial outcomes and trying to, to kind of um, use that to inform practice on on that more individualized care or care process but it's so it is really hard i really like i i totally understand why like where the dirty word comes from and why it gets the reputation it gets but the the um i think we are uniquely in a position as dietitians to be able to acknowledge that especially for an area of study like ours there's always going to be the there's other facts. Of course, there's going to be other reasons why X but might not work. It's not just that there's you. other sides. It's also that the nature of science is that, like, a- as we go on and learn more and more and more, like, some of the things that we knew before aren't true anymore. Like, we've learned something mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where, like, our jobs in communicating to, like, we all are in communications. We all communicate to the public. Um, it, it gets challenging because it's like, well, didn't you tell us this? And didn't you tell us that? Or wasn't yeah. didn't this used to be true? But I think that's like sort of a misunderstanding. It's not that those, it's not that what we told you before was wrong. It's just that as we learn new information, sometimes things yeah. change. It's so interesting in nutrition, we get damned for the evolution of science. Right. However, right. when it comes to things like mRNA research, yeah. right? People right. are like, that's so exciting. Well, guess what? Science is ever evolving. And so just like you said, you know, yesterday, this was the understanding. And now as we start to do more human trials and not rely solely on animals, right, then we have different outcomes. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing I would say about being in nutrition communications and what you said earlier, Jackie, about sound bites and the sound bite wins. I mean, I think that's also sort of like all of us have jobs that require us to distill information to like certain types of sound bite related (laughs) ways. And so part of that is a service to people because it helps them sort of understand and um, be able to approach that information better. But it's definitely never meant to be like the end all be all that there's always with nutrition and um, any science related thing, context and that individual need or whatever tweaking you need to do for the individual. So I think that, you know, as nutrition communication people, and as listeners might be listening to this, what you hear in the news or on TV or read in an article, that is like sort of what you can use to start a conversation then 
maybe with your own provider and get more, get deeper into that and how that impacts and relates to you. Oh, well said. Okay. Before I let you guys go, I want to get back to lemon coffee. The other thing I read about the other day was lettuce water. What the fuck? I've, I've commented. I I was interviewed on lettuce water the, for a TV show and for how dare you? Lettuce not, water. Not, not you. And I mean, how the, dare the universe? I, it's beyond not being true. It's also like what I find so damaging about these trends is that there are actually like sort of better studied, more effective ways to help improve your sleep. And so when we grab on to trends like this, not only are we doing things that aren't helpful, but we're not doing the things that have been shown to be helpful. We're shouting out the good alternatives, like the real alternative. What about a fucking cup of chamomile, Joey? You know, like, what about that? How about going to bed at the same time, getting sunlight during the day, you know, reducing your screen time, doing some deep breath work. I mean, there's like so many tools. (laughs) You know, eating less sugar. Yeah. Before we end, we have to pay a little homage to this one thing that I have been doing with everyone, with every guest, which is, and we can shorten it. We can, we can shorten it because normally I would do a full, like a, give me your dream day of meals and snacks. But I think it's best to limit it to like, you have this one meal that if you had to blindly choose, but also off the top of your head, where are you going to eat? What are you eating? What's in it? What are you drinking? What's your cocktail or your beverage? Start to finish, drinks, meal, can be a couple courses, and dessert. And where is it from if it's from a restaurant or it can be from something from your kitchen, can be anything. Who's going to I love it. Maya. Okay. All right. Here we go. So lobster. Oh, my God. Parker, for my birthday, made me... A lobster from clay because it is my favorite food. Oh um, my God, yeah. And so it sits on my desk next to me all the time. So for sure, I would have lobster. Probably I would start with raw oysters uh, and a glass of champagne or a dirty martini with three olives because in this world, I can have all the salt I want. Yeah. Maybe um, just a soy sauce on the side instead of the avocado. You'd be like, let me just get this jug. Of this entire container. <laughs> Give it, Ladies, I know that this means we are because we are all dirty martini drinkers. Yes. And so this means that we all that that we have to have that one day together. One hundred percent. Yes, please. Blue cheese olives for me. Yeah. Ooh. So ooh, yeah. those are so good. Yeah. So I think mine would be brunch because what I like about brunch is that it's a little bit of like dessert in a meal. hundred percent brunch always there's like some desserty component of brunch and um and i'm also like a brunch cocktail person so um sometimes it could be like a mimosa sometimes it could be a margarita just a little prosecco um and also like what i like brunch is you could do like your eggs but then you have that sweeter thing, like a waffle for the table. or some pancakes or whatever. So you get like <laughs> it's you the get gift a little of for of the table. Yeah, <laughs> for the table. I love that for, for the, the table. table. For the table. This, the table will have these yeah. gluten-free the tam- no, pancakes. No, honestly, with like the it's kind of like you have to try it. Mm-hmm. Um, we said it. Yeah, I yeah. like so that's I another do, I like scenario. Too. Oh yes. Okay. What what else with the post? Like a home, is there a home? So base I like, happening? I kind of like, I really like eggs Benedict, but it's, you have to find the gluten free toast. But if I can't find that, I actually just do it without it. Oh. I like it with uh, spinach and smoked salmon. Um, mm-hmm. And then you need your extra crispy hash browns. And oh. then you need that like brunch desserty thing, which could be like a gluten free muffin or waffle or whatever. There's usually some, some sort of. I have the place. I have the, as you're saying this, I have the place for us. And it's the place that we're going, the three of us. The three of us are going to this place, but I can't remember. I think it's called, I think it's Crown. I think it's called Crown. It's in the village. It's kind of close to NYU-ish. I might be misspeaking. Maya can walk there. 
Mine yeah. didn't work there. It's on Bleecker. It's on Bleecker and Sixth, I think. I got to look this up because I don't want to be totally wrong. I will look it up and put it in our in our show notes because I definitely think that we need a meal here because it has everything that we that you both just talked about, which, by the way, I, Maya gave her answer to this, and I thought, 100%, this is me. And I can picture it, and I have one clarifying question, which is hot lobster roll or cold lobster roll or just lobster, just poached lobster, plain and simple. Usually, I just have like a steamed lobster um, and some clarified butter. Why mess butter. it up? Yeah. yeah, why mess it up? You know, like honestly, for years, for my birthday, I have had the same thing, like probably since I was 19 years old. Do Listen, you guys go out for it or do you uh, make it at home? So I, so it's very funny, right? Obviously, you know, Afro-Caribbean person, where do I spend, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts, Maine, my aunt and uncle. So like, or Cape Cod, because why? That's the US version of the Caribbean in my mind. Really not, but yes. And so anywhere <laughs> close to water that I can have my lobster, sign me up and I'm there. But usually it's like, yeah, really it's at home and that's where we have it. So not my Brooklyn home, but like either on the Cape or in Maine with my family. Oh, celebrating your birthday. I love this tradition. That's mm-hmm. so beautiful. Yeah. I I just tried to Google, by the way, where we're going, but I couldn't find it. But I will say that the one thing I think that we would all perhaps love that I had recently is a Mezcal Negroni from the bar room at the Modern, which would bring us, it would bring us uptown. But right, I mean, with, you know what it, you know what? Does Maya can walk there. Me? Maya can walk there. Maya can run you know, can run there and then we'll be like, bring her I'm not personal joking. glass of olive like, brine. Can she just have one? <laughs> so true. As She'll leave the olive brine on the side. Right. I'm like, I can get there on foot. I love you both so much. I cannot thank you both enough times for doing this today. First, before I leave you officially, where can everyone find each of you? Tell us, Sam, start with you. Where can we find you? Uh, Nutritionist Sam on Instagram. Yes. Preach it. Yes. Preach it. Let him know. Let him know. <laughs> Let him know. Tell Let him, him know. Tell everyone. I love it. And you can find me across social at Maya Feller RD. Boom. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jacqueline London RD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers.